Hi everyone, it's Indigo. Over the next few weeks, we're on summer vacation at Prio, so you'll be hearing some reposted episodes like this one. I picked these episodes to repost because they didn't get the most attention the first time around, but I think they're really interesting. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trickhauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. In the wake of Black Lives Matter protests around the world last year, many institutions looked inward at what they could do or change, Prio included. We curated a collection of our existing research on racism, inequality, and discrimination, which I'll link in the description. But Prio also allocated internal funding for project development on ethnic, racial, cultural, and religious discrimination. One of the projects that came out of that looks at diversity in European universities' syllabi. In the last few years, several waves of criticism have led to a movement to decolonize reading lists. This means, for example, not relying as heavily on established Western, often white male authors, and looking beyond the West for scholars and work that can bring new perspectives not as often seen in academia. This movement notably kicked off in 2015 with the demand, Roads Must Fall, in South Africa, referring to colonist Cecil Rhodes, but it has reverberated and continued since then. The Prio project I'm focusing on today is titled Teaching African Peace and Conflict Through European Eyes and it's the work of Ilaria Carozza and Maria Sandes. I'll be talking to both of them about their findings and what they hope to research further. Ilaria Carozza is a senior researcher at Prio, currently working on artificial intelligence as a frontier of US-China competition, the ethics of algorithms, dual-use technology, and the security assistance provided to countries in Africa, the Middle East, and Southeast Asia. Maria Sandes is a doctoral researcher writing her dissertation on the G5 Sahel Joint Force and Counterinsurgency in Mali. Welcome back, Maria and Ilaria. Thanks for coming back on the podcast and uh, coming on together this time because you two are working on a really interesting uh, project at Prio. I am really excited about this project. I'm really excited to hear about your initial findings. Um, so, Maria, why don't you start by just telling me what was your personal impetus for, for writing the project application for this, for getting the funding, and um, how did this all start? Yeah, so uh, this is a project that uh, came out from an internal call at Prio for smaller projects on inequality, marginalization, injustice, discrimination, and racism, kind of as a result of the Black Lives Matter movement in, uh, during summer last year. Um, and me and Ilaria started talking and... Um, realized that we share a lot of uh, similar experiences, especially when it comes to education. Um, so we first and foremost wanted to map out how diversity in academia has changed over the past five years. Um, so has this debate around decolonizing the academy that kind of blossomed in 2015, has that changed the diversity in academia over the past five years? Um so this uh, decolonizing academia is is like part of that is part of uh, is diversifying reading lists, curricula, and kind of challenging the Western supremacy in the educational system that we see today. Um, so what we basically set out to do was to collect um, master course reading lists on modules related to African politics, peace and conflict, and security. 
Um, and we wanted to collect these from like two time periods. So before 2015 and more recently in the past few years to see if this decolonizing the academy debate has had an impact on curricula. So that's kind of the starting point of the project and where we found um, similar interests, I guess, and curiosity. Yeah, exactly. And then um, in a sense, our idea was that, um, you know, the way academics and researchers think and write about inequality, injustice, exclusion, marginalization, discrimination and racism is very much rooted in our education. So in a sense, with this uh, project, we wanted to take a step back from research as such and, and rather bring the attention to the curricula to the syllabi uh, in uh, in master's courses at European universities, in a sense, with this um, uh, belief that, you know, this is where interests and thoughts around these uh, themes take shape, or at least that was the case for me. And I'm sure uh, Maria can say, can probably say the same for herself. So, um, so we, we, we wanted to really look at how diversity, and by that we mean the, the views with which the students are presented, right? The different, the content of the different modules and programs in higher education are in different, um, in, in, in a given curriculum in, in, in different universities. So you mentioned 2015 specifically, Maria. Uh, why is that the demarcation of, of the two time periods that you picked? Yeah, so in 2015, you had um, uh, the Roads Must Fall movement in, in South Africa, where a statue of the colonialist Cecil John Rhodes was removed from campus. And this kind of sparked this whole uh, decolonizing the ac- uh, academia debate. And I think this is a debate that has been probably been around for quite a long time, but that really kicked it off. Um, and, and it became soon like you can say that it started a bit in South South Africa, but it it became an international movement quite quickly. And and I was myself studying whilst this was a movement, and I saw it quite clearly when I was studying in England that it became this international movement among students and academics more generally. Yeah, and I mean, um, you could see, you know, this this hashtag roads must fall was created and it started circulating through social media. It drove national and later uh, uh, international debates about decolonization and, and then change in universities. Um, and so there are a number of, of, of initiatives, again, uh, uh, again, that we we looked up to in a sense, for instance, the decolonizing SOAS initiative in, in London is, is one of the um, uh, of the several uh, debates, right, that occurred uh, partly in consequence uh, as a consequence of the of the um, roads must fall debate and also again as Maria pointed out feeding into larger and and, and longer and older conversations as well about the need to really diversify the perspectives that the students are exposed to. So before we get into your actual project and findings I just wanted to ask you Eladia you've already I think you've already um, illustrated pretty concisely and clearly why decolonizing the academy is important. You point out the fact that this is where scholars are born. This is These are the sources that they're exposed to. And it, it seems pretty inarguable that diversity of thought should be important. But there has been a lot of pushback on this, uh, including in Norway. Um, but I would say everywhere <laughs> we've seen we've seen pushback. And I'm just wondering, where do you think that's coming from? What are what are the arguments against decolonizing the academy do you do you think that there is something that people fear that they're going to lose or i mean is there any justifiable reason why why 
they find this problematic? Um, yeah, you're very right. I think that campaigns for decolonizing the curriculum still face a lot of skepticism and resistance um, in um, pretty much uh, uh, not only in Europe, but, but elsewhere too. And in Norway, there's, uh, there was a debate a few years ago going on exactly on this following a, a PRIO event, right, on the on the topic or on a similar topic, at least. And uh, I think that what most of the academics that seem to resist um, this this uh, this idea of diversifying the curriculum uh, argue that this campaign, so to speak, is rooted in some kind of cultural relativism, uh, and, and in a way they, they instead they sort of uh, they 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 don't they oppose a, a radical epistemic relativism in research. And uh, but but I think that especially recent episodes of systemic racism in the U.S. and Black Lives Matter movement that we witnessed last year really remind us of the importance. Uh, right of 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 equal and non-discriminatory structures, both in society and education. So I feel like if um, if the debate perhaps is framed more in terms of again diversifying and 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 and, and make the curricula and the and the reading lists more more equal, then 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 also those that resist this debate would uh, would probably see the value in at least applying some kind of self-criticism to the way that we teach to the way that we think about teaching our own classes. I mean, personally speaking, at the time when this debate um, took place, or at least the beginning of this debate took place from 2015 onwards, I was in the in my first year of PhD. And that's also when I started teaching myself. Of course, I wasn't the course convener, but I was a teaching assistant, right, for, for both undergraduate and postgraduate courses. So to me, even though I wasn't initially familiar with this idea of diversifying, decolonizing the academy, I it, it helped me a lot, right? Thinking and, and reflecting myself on my own biases on the way that I set up my courses, the way that I thought about all the readings. And, 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 and I think that perhaps that's just the way that, again, those resisting the debate should really think about it, just as a way of making our teaching better. Not necessarily, I guess maybe they're scared about the decolonizing part because they see it as just simply an attempt to throw in some more, um, you know, uh, uh, the black lecturers or Asian uh, 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 writers. And, and, and I don't think that that's all there is really to this debate. Now I want to get into the meat of what you have actually done. So, Maria, can you just tell me a little bit about both the methods of, of how you actually studied these syllabi, some of the challenges that you maybe faced, and which universities did you actually look at? What courses? Yeah, so so first of all, I, it's worth just highlighting again that this is a, a preliminary study. It's quite a small project. So we, we based our methods also around um, feasibility in terms of who we have access to and, and where we feel that we have some kind of background experience that we can feed into this project. So we um, we basically looked at nine universities, three in Norway, three in the UK, and three in France. Um, and uh, and uh, I guess within this framework, we definitely faced different challenges. So we were collecting reading lists, right? So we con- uh, contacted each of these universities, mainly their libraries in the first instance to see if they if they could give us access to these reading lists so that we could basically map out diversity and changes in diversity in the past five years but there were definitely challenges and I think the main challenge that we found when it comes to studying diversity in academia was um, transparency 
And by transparency, I, I mean, how feasible is it for us to actually get access to these, how open our universities to sharing these reading lists? Um, we experienced that some universities had systems in place in terms of reading lists. So when we contacted the, the libraries, they would put us into this like chain of event where we would end up getting the reading list. So they kind of had a record of all the reading lists and were happy to share that with us. Um, but in a lot of universities um, as well, they were more resistant. You didn't have this system. And it basically came down to the library saying that we need to contact the course conveners. Um, and then it was basically up to the course conveners whether or not they were willing to share these reading lists with us. And, and, and that proved quite challenging for us because um, we basically experienced not being able to get hold of reading lists for a lot of the courses or universities that we contacted either because the course conveners didn't reply to our emails or because they were more hesitant to sharing. Um, so I think, yeah, I think the the transparency in terms of studying diversity um, in academia was definitely one of the challenges that we faced. I'm just curious, Maria, before, before Laria jumps in, um, when course conveners did not want to share their reading list, did they give you some kind of explanation or was it uh, just stonewalling and not responding to to your requests i personally experienced more um no response um ilaria you had a couple of other experiences maybe you want to share from that yeah i had a couple of um department managers actually not so much the course conveners course conveners i just got no response from most of them at least in the uk in france it went a little bit better but um from some department managers they told me that they were unable to share the syllabi and I'm not, I'm not quite sure what that enable means, really. But to me, again, it points to it points to what Maria was was referring to this kind of, you know, studying diversity in academia. For us, it really it transformed into how we study diversity in academia rather than the diversity in itself. Because, of course, if you can't access a syllabi, then how could you ascertain that they're diverse or not? And uh, and again, um, it, it sort of seemed to ca- to sort of come down to the individual person whatever that was a librarian or a course convener to rather you know decide whether to to share it or not without a proper system in place right and one of the things that you have highlighted is the connection here between transparency and tuition fees which i think is really interesting because uh when when you wrote some notes to me you said that you were making this link between um intellectual property versus it just being a collection of publications. And I mean, I know in Norway, because I went to the University of Oslo, that you can access all of the reading lists going years back for a course. I mean, I can probably still see what I was assigned to read five years ago. Uh, for, for every semester, if the reading list changed, you'll be able to see that. But in at the University of Oslo, you don't pay tuition fees. So... It's maybe in that sense they feel that there's there's an obligation, uh, and for all I know, there's a law about this. I don't know, but I would be curious to find out um, to make that an open an open list. So maybe Maria, can you talk a little bit about that that connection between tuition fees and and transparency, and what does education cost? Yeah, no. So obviously, when we when me and Laria faced these challenges in our research, we started discussing. Okay, so what? What are we actually finding out? And it's like Ilaria said, this research turned into um, 
a project on how to study diversity in academia more than actually the diversity in academia. And and we try to discuss what were the reasons why transparency varied so much across these universities. And one of the um one of the things we discussed is, like you said, um, tuition fees. It's like you say in Norway, education is free or you pay like a symbolic sum for each each semester. Whereas in the UK and in France, the tuition fees are more substantial, to put it that way. And over the years, they have only increased as well. Um, and one explanation that we, we discussed is therefore in the UK and, and somewhat in France as well, reading lists are probably considered part of um, the property almost that the students pay for uh, when they when they uh, enter universities uh, and that this should therefore not be immediately available for non-paying students or other people. Um, whereas in Norway, on the other hand, there is easy access to these reading lists, like you say, and there's a system for accessing these as well if you contact the universities. And I think it's because they're considered more belonging to the public domain. Um, and it really boils down to how different universities perceive reading lists, right? Is it only a list of readings? Because if it is, then these readings is accessible to everyone who's willing to pay for the book or willing to subscribe for a journal. Or is the reading list actually intellectual property of the course conveners and therefore considered more exclusive? Like, what are you actually paying for when it comes to education? Is it the teaching or is it actually the teaching and a list of readings I guess so so that was that was the discussion that me and Ilara have had and we we think is quite an interesting one in terms of diversity and transparency in terms of curricula um, in universities and probably quite an important one too yeah and there's also an additional element to this which I guess kind of surprised me uh, when it comes to transparency because I I mean we approached the um, uh, course conveners librarians and department managers uh, clearly and explicitly saying that this was a research study conducted at a professional institution by professional and experienced researchers and that of course every material will be treated anonymously um and 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 so that would that would be our data right uh, upon which to uh, to reflect on themes and then nobody no names would have been divulged in any way and so i was i guess a little surprised that there was this lack of <sighs> either interest uh, or, 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 or again, transparency in just simply sharing the leading, the reading lists with some peers. So, you know, peer to peer, I'm a researcher and I'm asking you a course convener at a university where I myself studied not too long ago to share something with me confidentially so that I can just try and understand what is going on. And, and that was not, it didn't seem possible. And, and that is partly, I think what, what then uh, drove us in, in, you know, into thinking about this intellectual property issue, because then <laughs> if you don't want to, I mean, I would, it's still not okay, but I would understand if you didn't want to share, you know, your, your teaching material with the general public, but with a peer and with a research institution, I thought that that was very strange. Um, so I would like to actually hear a little bit about your, findings. <laughs> I know, like you both say, they're, they're very preliminary. It's a, a small, small data set. But um, Eladia, maybe you can walk us through a little bit what, what you have found and maybe also what you hope to expand on. 
Yeah, so I think uh, our findings can essentially be summarized um, by saying that um, so the universities we examined in Norway provided little foundation for analyzing diversity in academia, simply because they have an exceptionally limited number of courses or programs on uh, Africa uh, and peace and conflict. Um, but again, as Maria pointed out, there was at least a, a clear system on how to access relevant reading lists, which are uh, uh, most of the time open um, to access. Uh, on the other hand, uh, for universities that we examined in France, there was uh, there were a lot of relevant courses on, on the topics of Africa, security and conflict, but there was no system for accessing these reading lists, apart from, again, the individual course conveners. Um, and I think that also our experience with the universities in the UK was, uh, was similar to those um, in France, although I'd also have to say that um, there were, uh, at least in the three universities that we looked at, there were um, fewer courses uh, or programs on Africa, peace and conflict um, than in France. Uh, Maria, are there any findings that surprised you or that you want to highlight? I think Ilaria summarized it quite well, according to, to the limited data that we actually got access to. Um, but what I, um, I guess one of the things that came up in the few reading lists that we actually got access to is that there hasn't really been a lot of change in terms of the reading lists over the past five years. So the, the reading lists that we got access to, where we could compare current and, and previous reading lists, there weren't the one, it didn't look like there had been an attempt at diversifying the reading list, but obviously that's too, too it's, our, our data set is too small to generalize um, about that. So I do think going forward, I think that is definitely something that should be expanded on and probably include universities in these kind of research um, to actually get access to it. Um, and I think like... I guess one of the findings outside of what we actually set out to do is this link between diversity and transparency. Um, and I think it's a bit uh, linked to what, what Ilaria was saying earlier. Like if universities want to be diverse in their curricula, then there also needs to be a system to evaluate whether or not they are, right? So there needs to be transparency enough to actually evaluate this kind of like measure this kind of diversity um so i think this link between transparency and diversity is is kind of it's it's kind of an obvious one but it's also i think something that needs to be explored even more going forward and and, and taken seriously with both researchers looking into diversity in academia but also universities themselves if if they actually want to be diverse and they also have to be transparent enough to 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 evaluating this kind of diversity. I'm going to add one tiny detail on the on the findings, um, tagging onto what Maria said, because I think it's it's interesting. There was one, it wasn't even the reading list, because again, we didn't get access to it. But at this one university, um, they gave me the list of the key readings or preliminary readings for the entire course. And the newest item or a book uh, on the list was dated 2007. Now, it's hard for me to believe that for, from 2007 to 2021, there was no there was no publication on the topic of Africa, peace and conflict. So I think and and um, and I think that's that's highly problematic. And of course, that it's just a key uh, reading list. Uh, um, uh, sorry, the, the, the list of, of preliminary readings, it can't be taken to to actually represent the entire course. But I think it's telling if that's a 
if that's the thing that you put on your website when you where basically prospective students go and try to find more about okay is this the kind of course that I want to take what is this all about and then you only have old books and old articles uh, I don't think that that <laughs> that is really promising yeah that's uh seems like they could do <clears throat> A little better, like you said. It would be, uh, I would be very surprised if there was no other option since 2007 for, for a reading list. So wrapping up here, I know, again, this was, this was just the start of what you are both hoping to do. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on where you can take this further, but also maybe what universities could be doing. I mean, maybe it's, it's obvious, like you say, um, find books and, and articles that are at least more recent um but but what kind of prescription would you would you give universities um maria maybe you want to go first it's it's a tough question i think i'll start with where to go from here uh in terms like laura and i've been discussing whether or not we should turn this into a bigger project and i think this is definitely a project worth doing um but i think it's also i think the way that you this project together is quite important when we see that the obstacles that we've that we've faced in the past few months in, t- in terms of our methods um i do think that it's quite important to include universities as partners in this project uh so it's a joint effort um between universities and uh and academics outside of universities and and uh, you probably want quite a diverse to put it that way group of people who, who who are actually involved in this project yeah and i think i mean definitely having the universities or at least lecturers and researchers from specific universities that we want to assess the diversity of is absolutely essential because again it's possibly it's not <laughs> it isn't a, a guarantee but it's possibly easier for them to get access to these uh, to these syllabi uh, and i also think that um the conversation really needs to happen now in a sense because again uh, the 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 black Lives matters movement last year and and all these conversations that are going on right now about the quality of the education that these students are getting especially in a time of pandemic where they don't really have access you know to the facilities to the rooms to the libraries physically at least um and 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 i'm just a little afraid that it would um if we don't have this conversation now it would lose momentum again as it did after 2015 when everybody was looking at diversifying curricula and then it sort of died down right in the past five to six years well thank you both so much for talking with me and i'm really looking forward to um seeing your policy brief which will be coming out uh pretty soon but also hopefully seeing this this project grow and move forward so thank you thank you for having us thank you indigo Thanks for picking Prio's Peace in a Pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information, visit prio.org. Editing, recording, and hosting by me, Indigo Trey Music by Martin Rendemol.